hear the word of God to you this morning. At this time, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Antioch, king of Elisar, Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shechember, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedolaramur, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedolaramur and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephaites in Ashroth, Carnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava, Kirathayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Then they turned back and went to En Mishfat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living, living in Hazazaran, Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Seboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim against Kedarlaomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar. Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eschol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. After Abram returned from defeating Kedarlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal. 
so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eskel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. I'm going to read one more verse. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Thus ends the reading. God's holy and word may bless our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. There's a great scene in Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Anybody get to see that movie? Well, the whole thing <laughs> is they're trying to find the Holy Grail, which is the, supposedly the cup that the Lord used in the Lord's Last Supper. And so they finally get into the secret chamber. And he's in there, and then the enemy, his, uh, um, Indiana Jones's two enemies are in there too, a guy and a girl. And um, it was protected, the grail is protected by this ancient knight who's been there for, for a long, long time, centuries, protecting the cup. But of course, in these movies, the bad guy gets the upper hand, and he has to choose which of the many cups is actually the cup that the Lord used during the Last Supper. Now, if he chose the right one, very important, if he chose the right one, he would gain eternal life. But if he chose the wrong one, it would have lethal consequences. So with the help, with the help of a woman, forgive me, named Elsa, it's a different Elsa, not this beautiful, good Elsa, but with a woman named Elsa, he chose, listen, the most beautiful gold and glittering cup of all the cups, of all the chalices. He holds it up and he says, even more beautiful than I had imagined. And then he drinks from the well with the cup, waiting for the magic to happen. Well, to his horror and to the horror of those watching, he begins to age instantly, and his skin starts drying up, and he turns into a skeleton and literally turns into dust. Then the, the knight speaks up. I love the scene. And he goes, he has cho chosen poorly. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> These tours. And then, of course, Indiana Jones gets his pick. It's his turn. And he sets his eye on this homely-looking copper cup. And it, does, it still brings tears to my eyes, just the point of it, because he says, that's the cup of a carpenter. Not a fancy gold. And I love what the knight says. You have chosen wisely. Well, I want to, why do I bring that scene up? Well, I'll tell you why. Last week in our study of Genesis 13, we saw something about Lot, didn't we? We saw that Abram gave Lot the choice of the land. You remember that? So now Lot has to make a choice. And he could choose what? Poorly? Or he could choose wisely. And as Pastor Pete so did such a great job, I don't have to get in detail to it this morning. But if you notice, Lot did not choose by faith. Lot chose by sight. He saw the land was beautiful, well watered like the garden of the Lord. But there was one problem with this land. This land was right near Sodom. And the Bible tells us this. Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom, verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly 
against the Lord. So you can almost hear from heaven, you have chosen poorly. And let me make this, maybe I could bring this home to you a little more clearly in our day and age. It really convicted me when I thought about this. How many a woman has chosen a man simply by sight? Maybe the guy's buff. Maybe he's a little edgy. He's cool. Only once she gets in a relationship with him, she finds out he's superficial at best. He's abusive. And he's ungodly. And then she's living in a nightmare rather than a dream. I'm not to pick it on women, though. How many guys look for a woman only for outward beauty and only to find out that the reality of Proverbs 31 is this. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Well, Lot chose poorly. And we're going to find out in chapter 14 that he was already beginning to experience the consequences, listen, of not making choices in light of eternal truth. That is, in light of God's word. Instead, he was going to be experiencing consequences of pitching his tent near the wicked place of Sodom. And so what ends up happening is, and I want you to see this, Lot brings himself into quite a pickle. He got himself into this mess. And so Lot was in need of deliverance, and that's where his uncle comes in again. Good old Abram, the man of faith. So we're going to see this this morning. And we won't be too long this morning, shorter than last week, so that, that, that might encourage you. <laughs> God moves in Abraham to bring about deliverance, and Abram shows his faith by refusing the rewards of the wicked. Very different choices here. One by sight, one by faith, and we see the difference. So God moves in Abraham to bring about deliverance, and Abraham shows his faith by refusing to accept the rewards of the wicked. Take a look at the three things we're going to point out. First of all, God's provision despite bad decisions. You've got to thank God for his mercy. Can I get an amen? God's provision despite bad decisions. Secondly, Abraham's decision to refuse worldly provision. I had a rhyme. But the last one, I have no rhyme for you. I, I sat there and stared and thought and I couldn't come up with All I see is this. A mysterious visitor brings a benediction. Because we're going to get into that mysterious priest called Melchizedek. I can pronounce his name at least. Those other guys... Sorry, I butchered him. But Melchizedek, I know. All right, so let's see the first one. God's provision despite bad decisions. This is our, our longest point, and I think it's pretty profound. Now, I don't know about you, but at first reading, as you're reading it, you're like, what, why is God's word so concerned about these, these little petty kings, these pagan kings fighting one another? I'm reading the names, and I'm kind of doing what some of you guys do too. I'm kind of like going... <laughs> Like, why, why would God be concerned? Well, we find out why God is concerned when we finally get through all those rough names and we get to verses 11 and 12 and we read this. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Then they went away. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Ding, 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 ding. Why is God concerned? Because it affected Abram's nephew, Lot. 
You notice that? That's who comes into the story, and that's why we're being told this story. Um, so you've got to remember, Lot and his whole family were affected by this. They were taken over by these kings. They were taken captive. So what does Abram do, the man of faith? He says, you made your own bed. Lie in it. Is that, Ab is that what Abram says? No. Instead, he right away mobilizes his household fighters and organizes a rescue mission. He says, we're going in. <laughs> Saddle up. We're going in. Now, I think it would be hard for anyone to argue that Abram would have gotten involved otherwise. In other words, it wouldn't have had nothing to do with him, these other kings. So what's interesting is we see here, and this was powerful to me, we see that even the wicked city of Sodom and its king were blessed because of God's concern for one of his weak, failing, unwise children, Lot. You see that? Even though Lot was imperfect, even though he was less than exemplary as a child of God, he was a child of God nonetheless. And where am I coming up with this? Is this just Santo like guessing? No. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7. Peter calls Lot, guess what? A righteous man. Yeah, by looking at his life, we wouldn't say that, would we? That's why we got to be careful about judging others. You with me? Because only God knows, ultimately, who his elect are. And certainly, as we look at Lot, um, he was not the strongest example. Luther puts it this way. Sometimes you've got to go old school to get a good quote. He says, Thus God honors his saints, for he spares the most perverse ingrates on account of one or two believers. In addition, these perverts received also their goods, which they could never have expected. The same is true today. For whatever blessings the world enjoys, it enjoys because of God's saints on earth. If it were not for his holy church, God would have destroyed the whole world long ago. You know how we know that's true? Because when the last elect is saved, Jesus is coming. The jig is up. He's done. And so we have to thank God that he's not done yet. As we look around and we want to, as we prayed earlier, for people to receive mercy. To be saved from the wrath to come. So God's mercy to an undeserving, unrepentant, wicked world is truly an incredible thing. You know, God having mercy on the king of Sodom was pretty powerful. That's our God. He causes his reign to, to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Amen. His sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's a good God. But it's even more incredible to see God's merciful provision for a foolish saint who continues to make bad decisions. That's what I think we need to see. To be sure, listen, here's the thing. And I often mention this because we need to understand this. God may forgive us, but sometimes it doesn't mean that the consequences of our bad actions aren't taken, are taken away. You know what I mean? Like, so for instance, you may be promiscuous. You may have contracted the virus HIV. You with me? Because of a bad thing you did. Now, can you be forgiven? Yes. But sometimes what happens? You still have to live with the consequences of that decision. Right? But 
Here's the really incredible thing, and I think we forget this. How many times does God not only forgive us, but also rescue us from the consequences? I look back at my life and I look at the things that should have happened to me, and I say, Lord, you're a merciful God. Why I'm not in prison or dead? God's mercy. You know, we look at prisoners and we say, oh, look at the bad you. And all I got to say is, you just didn't get caught. But God had mercy. And what's interesting here is you see Abram, who was God's man, a man of faith, a recipient of mercy himself, because don't forget, he tried to pass his wife off as a sister. This is no perfect person. He shows mercy to his nephew, Lot, who put his own self and his own family at risk by pitching his tent towards Sodom, that wicked city. He received mercy, and Abram right away doesn't ask questions. He mobilizes. Because mercy received demands what? Mercy given. That's convicting. And it's a good reminder for us as Christians to remember, we're never more like our Father in heaven when we don't treat people as their sins deserve. When we extend grace and mercy to the undeserving. A mother once approached Napoleon, I like this illustration, seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that the young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But I don't ask for justice, the mother explained. I plead for mercy. But your son doesn't deserve mercy, Napoleon replied. Sir, the woman cried, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well then, the emperor said, this is interesting, I will have mercy. And he spared the woman's son. Second thing I want to point out is not only the truth that God's provision is given despite bad decisions, but secondly, Abraham's decision to refuse the ungodly's provision. I want you to see this. So when Abraham returns from his triumphant rescue of Lot, two kings come to meet him. Pretty interesting, right? One king comes to bless him, and the other one comes to possess him. I'm going to show you what that means in a second here. We're going to consider the evil king first, the king of Sodom. You would think that a simple thank you would be in order. Now, how many times have you rescued somebody or helped somebody and, and you know, maybe you expect maybe a little thank you? Are you with me? And sometimes you don't get a thank you. You get some other strange responses. Maybe in this case you would expect a rethinking of the man and the man might rethink his evil ways as an evil king. And he might realize Abram only had 318 men and he whooped on these kings. So maybe he would say, the God who made everything must be with this Abraham. So maybe I should repent and trust in that God who is mighty to save. But instead, he actually tries to get in on the credit. Instead of giving God the glory. He offers Abram the booty. So, but why does he offer? Oh, keep this stuff for yourself. Just give me the people. You keep. Why? We find out why in a moment in Abraham's response. But here's the issue. He wanted to say, Abram's my boy. I got Abram on my bankroll. Oh, he's one of my guys. I helped him. 
deliver. Now, some commentators point out that this would have been a great temptation for Abram to finally get in with the Canaanites, to be considered one of, one of them. Ah, I don't buy it. I don't think it was that huge of a temptation for Abram, but that's neither here nor there. What I am sure of is his clear response. What's Abram's clear response? No stinking way. He says, I'm not even going to take a thong of a sandal. It's like a shoelace. Because I don't want you to say, this is pretty bold, I don't want you to say, I made Abram rich. Abram didn't want worldly rewards. He didn't want glory for himself. He agreed with the other king who came to meet him, the king of Salem, which is where we get Jerusalem, king of peace, by the way, Melchizedek. When Melchizedek blessed Abraham, he said this, blessed be who? God most high, who did what? Who delivered your enemies into your hands. Who is responsible for Abraham's victory? God himself. And he will not give his glory to another. Especially not a king who needed to be delivered. Isn't that interesting? He's the one who needed to be delivered and he wants credit. And Abram goes, not on my watch. To God alone be the glory. He's the one who delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. And Abraham is saying, he's the one whose reward I seek. I don't want your money. I want your worldly fame. Now, I've I got to say something I think is really powerful. Can you imagine if we all stopped trying to build names for ourselves and our own brand? And if instead we realized more fully the purpose for which we were created and recreated in Christ Jesus, to give all the glory, all the praise, and all the honor to God alone, that would be a revolution, my brothers and sisters. You know, when we give glory to God, what happens? Some folks roll their eyes. Oh, here he goes again, that religious freak. When we say, hey, it's God that gets the glory. Or a lot of times when we give glory to God, what do, what do folks say to us? Oh, you got to take some of the credit. You had something to do with it. You ever hear that one? I say, oh, yeah, I had something to do with it. I was a sinner, and I needed to be saved. I contributed sin to my salvation. Not something to brag about. Abraham didn't have anything to brag about either. But here's the thing. Sometimes people will even lash out in anger when we try to bring God into the equation. Right? But who cares what other people think when we see, let's see what God's response to Abram giving him the glory is. It's in chapter 15, verse 1 that I read at the end. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Abram, you denied yourself worldly reward. Well, guess what I'm giving you? Me. You get the eternal, a relationship with the eternal God. You know, it's interesting to me. When we seek to please and exalt men, we get what they reward. And what do they reward us with? Temporal blessings that pass away as soon as they arrive. But when we seek to please the eternal God and glorify him, we get what he promises 
to give everyone who trusts in him. And what's that? An eternal, lasting reward, which is, listen, th this is mind-blowing. Intimacy with the immortal, eternal, God-only-wise. I'm going to slow down a moment. I'm going to help you get this. Think of your favorite people on this planet. For some of us, it might be parents. And for some of us, it might be parents that passed or grandparents. Like for me, I often say, I wish I could get in a time machine and see my grandma again, who lived with us from Sicily. I loved her when she died, it devastated my life. And to think if I could have another few hours with her, you with me? And to just fellowship with her and talk to her and enjoy her presence. And for some of us, maybe it's a famous musician or an artist. Or some of us is, oh, if I could have an hour with this person, right? We would, be, we would follow, like when I met Phil Kagi, I was like, <laughs> And I'm like, oh, oh, I'm like, I lived it. And he's like, he's like, calm down, we got, you know. And then he, he calmed me down, and I was able to have, and then later I said, I can't believe I said all that, yeah. Because I was so excited I was in the presence of, in my mind, greatness, right? Well, if, God, if all those people excite us to have a relationship with, imagine a relationship with the person who made those people. And God says to Abraham, don't fear. You get me, the creator of all good things. And because this man of faith says, you could keep all your passing pleasures, king of Sodom, I'd rather have the lasting treasures from the king of heaven. God blesses him with just that. There's a, an old song. I almost sang it this morning with you, but I thought I'll spare you because it's kind of, the music's a little bit hokey. But I like the words. <laughs> and it goes like this. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. Sound familiar? I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be laid, held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. There's more verses, but, and it's really powerful. But what you might not know is that actually the one who wrote this was Prince Oscar Benedot. And in 19, excuse me, 1888, he relinquished his royal title and right to succession of the throne in order to marry a commoner who had faith in Jesus. He left it all. So when he sang these words, you know, sometimes we sing it and you hear people sing it like, that ain't true. It was true with this guy. He said, I'd rather have Jesus. You can have the throne. Wow. He's only following in the footsteps of Brother Abram. Now, unfortunately, Lot didn't learn that lesson yet. He stayed in Sodom. After all this, what does Lot, what does Lot do? He goes back to Sodom. And as we'll see in a few chapters, he's going to need delivering again, isn't he? He's going to have to get pulled out. And he still was having a hard time leaving. He had a hard time making a break with the world. And don't we all know people like that? Who claim to be Christians and who are like straddling the fence? I always think of that illustration. And all I could say is, God, that would be painful. 
Once we were, maybe once we were like that, or maybe some of us still are. You get rescued from a predicament that you brought on yourself, only to find out you're going to have to deliver that person again. And it grieves your heart when you reach out and rescue someone, so to speak, only to find that they continue to get themselves in the same mess repeatedly. And I say that because you realize how it grieves the heart of God? He has so much in store for you, and you continue to go for things that don't last and don't satisfy. God says, I want to give you something way better than earthly comfort. Or the worldly prize that you're, you're so striving for. C.S. Lewis once said this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures. I love this. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he says this, we are far too easily pleased. But what's cool about Abraham, Abraham heard God say, holiday at the eternal sea, and, and Abram said, I'm in. Let's do it. And that's the last thing I want to point out in just a couple minutes. A mysterious visitor brings a benediction. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, a different king, a king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest to God Most High. And blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Now listen. You want to learn a little more about and go deeper about this mysterious figure named Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest of the Most High God, you could turn to Hebrews 6 and 7. But we ain't doing that this morning. That would take a long time. But what we do see in this text about this mysterious king of the, uh, and priest of the Most High God, he, he disappears as quickly as he appears, and we never hear from him again. He's mentioned once in Psalms and then in Hebrews. But what I do want to show from this text, and it's something that's very clear, is that Abraham is set forth in the Old and the New Testaments as the man of faith par excellence. He's the father of all believers. He is our model of faith. And yet notice, this Melchizedek is superior to him. And this is a point that Hebrews makes. How do we know he's superior? Abram does what? Gives him the tithe. And Hebrews points out the lesser gives the tithe to the greater. Why do I bring that up? I'll tell you why. Because Abram, as much as he was a great, the greatest example of a believer, needed a savior. He needed a mediator. Abram was not the deliverer, and he knew this. When he met up with this mysterious king, he in worship gave a tenth of all of his booty to him in worship because he knew not even, uh, even half as clear as we know that he represented the ultimate mediator. 
And I think what's really interesting here is how does this mediator meet Abram? With bread and with wine. We have a greater king and a greater mediator than Melchizedek. And his name is Jesus the Christ. And he meets us with bread and with wine. But this bread is his body, which he gave for the sins of the world. This blood is the blood he outpoured so that you could be with him in paradise and you could have him as your great, exceedingly great reward. Not temporally, but forever. And what I think is interesting here is there's an old quote I've quoted a number of times um, in my preaching, and it's this. The cross of Christ has revealed to good men that their goodness has not been good enough. So whether you're Abram in this story, so to speak, or whether you're Lot, at the cross, you're equal. We all stand in the need of mercy. And that reminds us when we are tempted to give up on those who continue to make bad choices that God didn't give up on us and that he calls us to be like him and extend mercy. And it also reminds us, sister, as you were praying earlier, we all feel like that at times, that we're not worthy to be used. Even though Abram basically sold his wife up the river, God had mercy and still used him to deliver Lot and his family. Still met him with his priest and still blessed him by grace with himself. So no, you are not worthy. But you are not worthless. You're worth enough for the king to lay down his life. So you could be with him in paradise. Let's pray. Father, you know I needed to hear this message. And I know my brothers and sisters do too. Forgive us when we don't learn our lesson like Lot and we continue to make the same choices and wonder why we're receiving the same consequences. God, you say that you instruct sinners and the humble in your way. And we, we pray that you would instruct us, Lord. Help us to make choices that honor you and that bless us and those connected to us. Father, also we pray that even when we have good stretches, when we're trusting you and we're walking with you and we fail, help us to remember that we are not the mediator. We are not the savior that Jesus is. And in him, we get the best thing of all. And that's you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's respond together as we sing together.